Hello, and welcome to JK's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And this fortnight, we're reading Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim. Spin the Dawn is a Mulan retelling, but instead of a warrior, the main character, Maya, is a tailor pretending to be her brother to become the imperial tailor. Everything goes off the rails when the Emperor learns Maya is a girl, and Maya is forced to go on an impossible quest with the Enchanter Idan. There's love, magic, and sacrifice all tied up together in quite a unique retelling, but that doesn't mean it will end up the way you think it might. We should note here that neither Kelly nor myself are Asian, and therefore there are some aspects of the story we can't really speak to knowledgeably. We'll work to add Asian voices in the show notes where we can, but if we mess up, let us know. Initial reactions. Jesse, what did you think? When I first started reading this story, I wasn't actually all that into it. The pacing was a bit weird and the writing felt a bit more middle grade. But by the time we got to part two and we started to learn more about the magic of the world, I was all in. I really enjoyed Maya as a character and seeing her become more fierce and magical. That's not to say that I didn't have some issues and there were some parts of the story that I found problematic when looking at it through a present day lens, but like that's critical reading. Exactly. (laughs) I'm hesitant to attempt to sum up my reactions in a sentence or two because I have so many thoughts and feelings about this novel. I have some issues, as you said, and I agree a lot, honestly, with some of the points of critique that you mentioned just now, but um I find what a, lo- a lot of what Lim does really intriguing and I want to see where the m- series and the main characters go from here. The book made me think and feel a lot, which, you know, in my opinion is the fucking point of art in the first place. So I stand this read and recommend it to other people. So TLDR, listen to the entire episode. I have a feeling it's going to be a good one. Time to talk about all things world building in Through the Wardrobe. I'm going to start with the cool map. Isn't that what we did with City of Brass last time? So it's funny because I, the map, because it's on the e-reader, we got this book as an ARC, so we did not have a physical copy of the book. Full disclosure. Yeah, full disclosure. (laughs) Um, But the map was on like two pages, so I was also kind of like, I think I just skipped over (laughs) it. I think it would be a lot easier to access on the... um, like the actual physical copy right i think that would be easier the maps usually are mm-hmm. um that's... or if you're like reading it when i pulled this up on my computer on like my computer reader for the program it it showed the pages side by side so mm. maybe if you're looking at it on a computer it'd be a little easier to see the whole thing at once yeah absolutely or if the map is available on the author's website or something i don't know if it is i didn't check either I didn't. <laughs> well we can check and put it in the show notes if it is but um i that would be my one thing is that it it's hard to see it when you only have it on an e-reader one page not next right. to another um but the the map was helpful to me when i went back and was looking at things because the story turns into a travel story halfway through which i'm curious to find your thoughts about <laughs> uh so we'll see more of the world and i thought this was a really smart book one world building move on the author's part we see the temple of the sun in the halak Marat desert Um, in the land of Samaran, so to the west. Rainmaker's Peak is to the north in the Mountains of the Moon. And I can't tell if this region corresponds to a nation or a country with, like, geopolitical boundaries. Couldn't tell. Um, Do you know? I'm not sure. Mulan is a a character from a ballad from Chinese 
hist like um storytelling so i just assumed china but i'm not actually sure but it was i i'm I was more curious in the context of like the fictional world with the fictional oh, like land names like Alandi versus Agoria versus. I think yes. And I think it's why we see like um, Maya is like afraid of certain types of people or like mm -hmm. they're crossing into other regions where they're not as safe. Yeah. <laughs> Quote unquote safe. Um, so I do think yes, that is the case. Okay. And then we also see the Forgotten Isles of Lapzur. I was also not sure if this is a part of a nation or if it seems to be like a stateless weird demon ghost place which is kind of intriguing when you think about it that way i think if i i thought of it kind of um like the weaver in akamath like yeah. a place that is not ruled by anyone like no one's in charge but the people who are there in this case the demon bandur so. and, the, and the ghosts yeah but i assume bandur is like in charge of the ghosts because they seem to like follow him when they go after maya i'm also curious if there's only one protector of the or guardian what was he called the guardian or something mm -hmm, like the guardian of the temple yeah I'm, I'm curious if there's only one of those or if there's more of those i'm guessing there are more in other places also a temple of what yeah i don't know oh well i guess of the Star. blood of the stars yeah i have questions about <laughs> the okay. spiritual and religious aspect that okay. i'll get to in the magical section a ton of knitting in this story yay which to me was like so cute because both of us are knitters and i was just like oh i actually know what these things mean like i know what it means that she's casting on stitches like that was really cool to that me. was so <laughs> I, I love that part as like a knitting nerd i know and it's not even like i mean i know it's a big part of the story that they're like knitting and making clothes and all that sort of thing but um i just thought that part was really cool to me seconded <laughs> There's a few aspects of the world building that I hope will get fleshed out in future novels in the series. One small example uh, that I can think of is the Three Great Sages, which are supposedly Alandis or Alandis legendary scholars. And there's statues of them around. And I'm unsure of their significance. Yeah, also not sure. Wishing I had, I guess, a little bit more history, like chronological world building mm -hmm. of... Like, how did the enchanters come to be bound to the right. um, emperors? Or how did the land, like, what, how did the Shansen develop? How did this, like, military um, standoff or conflict really develop? I think I'm missing a, a tad bit of chronological world building Agreed. in this novel. Um, that, for example, we got in the City of Brass that we mm -hmm. talked about last episode. Um, but that's not to say that. Like, it's not going to happen in later novels right. in the series. I really hope it does. Well, I think it's kind of a difficult because I tried to look it up. I didn't know if, similar to the Poppy War, this book was overlaid over something that actually happened. Mm, good point. And it's hard because in this book, it's called The Five Winters War. And we don't have an author's note, at least not in the arc, explaining anything extra. And so I couldn't find yes. anything that showed for sure that it overlaid over actual history. That's not that's not to say that it doesn't. Right. It could just be our ignorance on this topic here. Agreed. But some things like this, um, Sean's the Sean Sen, like their name was lowercase. And I didn't know like if that was a group of people or if... Um, like there was something else going on there. Like were they a people within Alandi's like borders that came there or were they already there? So there were some things like that that were like a little confusing to me that I wish we had more information on. 
this is kind of on the cusp of world building and magic, but I thought it was really cool how as the story and the world expands, so does the magic we come in contact with. In the beginning, there was so little magic that I was disappointed, thinking the only magic we were going to get to see was the scissors, Yeah, which were actually really cool. They were so cool. I'm like, I want some fancy, cute scissors. (laughs) Um, But as the story goes on, we get flying carpets, gods, demons, shapeshifters, glamours, all sorts of magic. Curses. Yeah. Like, like deals with the devil, essentially. Being marked by demons. Yeah, like Faustian <laughs> dynamics. I really thought that was really cool way to like expand on the magic in the story. Yeah, that also, that reminded me of um, what happens in Saba Tahir's Ember mm-hmm. in the Ashes series. You know, how magic becomes more and more salient right. as, the, as the series progresses. Mm-hmm. It was cool to see it compacted into... Um, one story as opposed to saboteurs yes you have to that's more of a slow burn yeah it really was and is we still have one book left and i am terrified (laughs) for elias (laughs) wands out let's discuss all things magic i'm gonna start with the something basic and it might be a little asinine and i'm hoping you can clear things up for me okay there's magical objects and magical people I'm curious if magic ability is inherited. Maya does inherit the magic scissors, but like how do enchanters come with their abilities? There's a, like a, I guess an implication that myth might actually be real because Maya could is maybe descended from this thief that made the dresses. I don't know. I Help. think <laughs> I think it's a little confusing and I think maybe it depends is the answer. Maya could use the scissors, but her dad couldn't. Um, but Idan makes a, com- a few comments about Maya being worthy to wield the scissors, and that's why she can use them, and her dad and then he also, slash brothers can't. And then there's the implication, I think Adon mentions this, about how you can become unworthy of them. Right. Which so, is kind of cool. Yeah, kind of. Like, as like a character development, right. it's not just like metachlorine Star Wars style in well, your like blood. It's like Thor's hammer. It's like... Yeah, M- that's a good near. point. Mjolnir. <laughs> Mjolnir. I don't know. I call it Meow Meow. Meow Meow. <laughs> New official name. Yeah. Meow. That's what we call it in. In our house, we call it Meow Meow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Idan, on the other hand, doesn't seem to have come from a magical family. But exactly. He, but he says all enchanters are born with some magic. So... Is it just like a gene mutation? Oh... Look at you looking for like the the nature's reason why. I don't know. I think that's a that's one of the things I really like about this novel, and one of the things I think is m- most ambitious about it is the like science, magic, religion, all things that are typically seen as at odds are in dialogue in this book in really substantive ways. And right, that's really intriguing to me. Yeah, hopefully it will become more apparent in future books. Yeah. But I'm also okay with like suspending my disbelief enough to say it could be all of those things. Inherited, mm-hmm. meritocracy, born with it, any of them. Like people who are born witches and then people who become witches. I love that. I have another reflection that combines world building and magic and I'm curious to see what you think. Um, and and I, I just kind of mentioned it in prelude to it, the the connection between the religious system and the magical power was unclear to me throughout the majority of the novel did you have a similar experience kind of it seems like idan doesn't really believe in the religious aspects and and it seems like the monks didn't really trust the enchanters right there but we also have that one monk who's like the the enchanters used to protect matt the world from magic right 
I don't know. Yeah. So this is really intriguing to me. Intriguing is my new word this episode. (laughs) Instead of interesting. (laughs) Hearing it now. And to be honest, I wasn't sure how either the religious system or the magical system worked or how integral to the story either of them were going to be, let alone how they work together. Mm -hmm. And this is something that like, I think I have a few more hints now, but I'm still a little bit in the dark about. I knew that religion and magic were in dialogue with another, but like, what's their actual connection? Like, what is it? I don't know. But then it becomes clear at the end when the goddess Amana grants Maya a wish. She makes the dresses. So it seems like objects, like the magical objects, mm-hmm. almost give access to power and are like this bridge between the religious aspect and the magical system. I don't know. And which is kind of like how relics have power. You know right. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this sort of like miracle-y, magical. Yeah. Well, there's demons and you don't really get demons without religion. That's a good point. Usually. And the progression of the story and gradual revelation of this information to the reader mirrors what's happening to Maya, right. which makes sense, right? We saw this with Feyre in, Akatar, in the Akatar series, right. right? That we're when the reader has access through the main protagonist, then it's like a slower reveal about this sort of thing, right? Which is organic, and I think it makes sense on a story building, like a storytelling level. Um, I just found myself a little disoriented on this point, and. That could have very well been the author's intention. Mm-hmm. I mean, Maya certainly seemed that way. So if right. I'm supposed to feel like the character, then that's a success, I would say. And I know first books are often about setting up the world, and that's not necessarily a linear process. I've right. never written an enormous like epic fantasy no. saga, so I can't even imagine how hard this is. On a related note, I, th- I think it's important, and I want to talk about this with you, um, to point out that a few novels we've read for the podcast are moving in the direction of being unabashedly spiritual and making explicit connections between the magical system and belief in deities. Besides Spin the Dawn, the most obvious example I'm thinking of is Children of Blood and Bone. I'm curious what you think about this. I think I'm okay with it <laughs> as a trend, like as books. And I think it's a little bit reflective of um, the current times in which people have moved maybe uh, more away from very strict monotheistic religions to, I guess, more polytheistic or just spirituality in general. Mm-hmm. I don't know that much about religion in China, and I know it was in the show notes for the Poppy War, so I can include that in the show notes here as well. Not just the Poppy War, actually, but also Girls of Paper and Fire, because we're doing a lot with deities and polytheism in yeah. that story as well. Mm-hmm. It's difficult because I'm not a huge fan of monotheistic religions. I'd probably identify closer to agnostic than anything else. But I love mythology. So when they aren't based in Christianity, I like it. And I don't think we've read any that are based in Christianity Mm-mm. in particular. I enjoy them. Oh, maybe um, City of Bones. Oh, yeah. City of Bones for sure. And sometimes having that like knowledge already is helpful to a story like mm-hmm. City of Bones. Because I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of know about like God and fallen angels and... Right, all the Bible stuff. Mm -hmm. Maya has a belief in gods in the beginning and that she believes they exist, but don't necessarily believe they will interfere in the lives of humans, i.e. like a clockmaker god. And we see this change throughout the story as Maya has interactions with both gods and magic and how they seem to be at odds at certain points. Mm -hmm. I really like this aspect of the story. I have complicated feelings on the whole thing in general. But I think that may be uh, more of a reflection on my experience and beliefs surrounding religion rather than how religion is handled in the books we're reading. What do you think? What you said about um, the different gods 
just made me just now made me think of the fact that there are temples to different astrological mm-hmm. or astronomical both i guess uh um celestial bodies we can say there's sun temple moon and then stars and so i think that's also interesting that it's turning cosmic right and outer spacey which i totally am of on board course. with because i'm a huge <laughs> space nerd and i study sci-fi so i'm like and i like astrology right and astronomy i kind of want to get a telescope you should you should do it yeah and i think partly in this story it seemed like maybe the sun the moon and the stars were almost gods in and of themselves that's what i mean that's what's interesting yeah but i think we see that a lot in mythology like selene as the god of the moon yeah. and now i can't remember any of the other one helios yeah apollo helios yeah, apollo. yeah like these um, gods corresponding to right. celestial bodies yeah yeah so and even in witchcraft more obviously right <laughs> yeah absolutely. so i don't think that's that unusual and maybe other polytheistic religions go along with those like trends as well i just think that's really cool i like this revindication of non- judeo-christian religions Mm -hmm. yeah and that might be partly because we're getting other non-white voices yeah coming into ya more prevalently Mm -hmm. yeah i like it me too adon's names (laughs) did the extreme ones make you laugh yes because he has like a thousand names but there's also like they're also like really dark so it was like a little dark humor yeah um so i thought i appreciated that and his early names were jen and Jin, plus the oath that's basically a curse he can't break so it's this enslavement really i literally wrote in my show notes like like the Jin. uh-huh <laughs> exactly Similar with the Jin slaves in the novel we just read for the previous episode, right. The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. And I think that there's a lot to say about magic and enslavement. It comes up quite a bit in our podcast reads. I'm not sure why. Maybe because magic is supposed to be seen as like a huge responsibility. So you're kind of like a slave to your powers or something. I'm not really sure but, why it comes up so often. But Elias and Ember, mm-hmm. he's, you know, bound to the forest yeah. of dusk, right? Yeah. And Dada in the City of Brass, which you just read. Um, uh, Tamlin curses, right. those sorts of things, like Amarantha's stuff in Akatar. Yeah. Same thing with Folk of the Air, Holly Black, Cool Prince, and Wicked King. Right. There's like for imprisonment, lots of like magic used for imprisonment and enslavement, coercion. I, I but why I don't know I think it's a kind of a comment about power in general I would say yeah I think I think you're right um, which, which is kind of interesting because like the emperor doesn't actually have any magic but he's like u- using Edan to make him look pretty mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a lot glamour. Of that. <laughs> yeah it's a glamour you're right yeah which was odd also on the enslavement thing, specifically for this novel, specifically for Spin the Dawn, I appreciated how much that got fleshed out, mm-hmm. which I don't think that's quite as fleshed out in other books that we've read. Right. And it seemed like, and maybe you read this differently, that Adon, you're bound to serve for a thousand years no matter what. And so you Correct. have very little... Like, you don't have a choice in how the magic gets used. You're essentially a vessel. Yes. That seems to be the case. Like, 
I'm guessing when like you have a master they use yeah. literally use the word master well like I'm assuming when the emperor dies whoever is the next emperor or whoever oh whoever gets his coin whoever finds Amulet. it yeah <laughs> did I say coin I don't know <laughs> I mean because I imagine there's like a little circular pendant with a hawk on there mm-hmm. like it it disappears ends up somewhere else and until someone finds it he's a hawk it's just very connected to the relic and the gin right. folklore that we just read from Sitting of Brass. Mm-hmm. So I'm, this turned out really well, yeah. I think, to read them in right, one right after the other. Which is interesting. I'd like to, I think, learn more and maybe I'll look it up and put in the show notes about um, like the history and mythology around gin in particular. Because I think I associated it more with like the Middle East than I did with... Um, than like china like eastern asia yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i was surprised to see something so similar in this book please do i want to learn more yeah i mean this speaks to my lack of knowledge also same here <laughs> so yeah i'll add it in the show notes okay this could be my ignorance of non-western cultures certain non-western cultures showing but do you understand the significance of the hawk no but when i just thought of it i remember there's a hawk in like the disney movie mulan as well that the Oh, you're totally right. What are those? The Huns. Yeah. I was like, they're invaders, but I'm like, you built a wall. Maybe don't do that. So <laughs> I don't really feel bad. Um, yeah. So they have a hawk too. So there must be some significance. We're going to look it up. There might be some significance. Not much. I'm going to look it up. It wouldn't surprise me, right? Because um, birds were really important in Descendant of the Crane, for oh, example. Right. At culturally, they mm-hmm. seem to be super culturally like significant. Like there was symbolism there. Exactly. That had to do with the culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that there, that means like there's more to, for us to learn and we'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Sounds great. Wands away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. I'm going to start bigger, macro. Okay. We have a plot here that doesn't rely exclusively on violence and killing to move the narration forward. There is some of that, but that's not all. And I thought that was commendable. I didn't really think about how so many of our stories use violence to move the story and the plot forward, but this one doesn't really at all. It comes in where relevant, but it's not everything. No, which is, is... particularly surprising considering this is a Mulan retelling. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Because she's traditionally a warrior. Maybe she turns into a warrior. Maybe I, I have a feeling things are going to get more violent as the series progresses because it seemed to mature. And she's turning into a fucking demon. So. Yeah. <laughs> also because the novel got more violent as it progressed. Yeah. Did you notice that? I was really surprised because, like I said, in the initial reactions, I thought that the book felt a little young at the beginning yeah um and then right before part two starts we start with maya getting whipped yeah all of a sudden she's in prison getting tortured yeah and i was like wait what (laughs) and then after that things just like progressively got more mature (laughs) which i appreciated i didn't want to read a middle grade novel so or the villains and evil was less black and white in this novel which at first when I was first thinking about it, prepping for the episode, kind of was coming across for me as less developed. But when I thought about it more and approached the idea with more nuance, I think we do see the text making really important commentaries about 
things like evil and taking moral stands on things like the old boys club of club of tailors um greed and with the emperor right being power hungry no matter the cost um enslavement gender roles uh class war it's just not as heavy-handed i would say yeah the villains are more like institutions as opposed to people respect because that's how it works too agreed agreed yeah i'm really interested to see where this how this will progress in the future novels because i don't i don't think for a series you could keep the villains as institutions without mm, like losing something from the story Mm -hmm. like maya needs something to be against but i think that's bandur I think and so. her own oath, like the own enslavement. That Part comes of it, I think, with... will be herself. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> YA. <laughs> Typical, yes. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm on board for that for sure. I think, but I think the institutions and these sort of more nuanced explorations of morality and ethics and good versus evil are stronger in this novel than like Bandur. Right. That I agree. didn't, I don't know. I like, he just, I mean, he's a demon. What else do you expect of him except to be bad? Right. He just seems like a little one-dimensional, I guess. Right. Whereas these other explorations were much more profound and interesting to me. Right. Until we found out that he was Idan's old teacher. And then I was like, wait, what? <laughs> there were some like surprises in this story that I was yeah. like, oh, I didn't see that coming. You know what I want? What? A backstory. Kelly's gonna fall in love with Bandur in the next book. Let me tell you what. Oh my god! <laughs> I saw me. a T-shirt and I was almost bought it for you because it said, "You say villain like it's a bad thing," and all I could think was like, "Oh, that's Kelly." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on with me. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm in therapy. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> <laughs> and I have you to keep me in check. Yeah, I won't let you fall in love with any demons, <laughs> no darklings, no demons. <laughs> Speaking of which. Maya's transition into a demon, and this might be me just going way off the deep end and over-interpreting and giving something more meaning than it deserves, but I'm going to try it, and you let me know what you think. Okay. I th- I'm i reading this, the transition into a demon, as, an, as a commentary on the root of evil as possibly taking strength in certain ways and going too far out of alignment with it. Let me explain. For example, lying to people to lying to protect people so like means versus ends conversations what are you doing and and how do we talked about with like reese for example and asriel um and then also she's losing feeling of emotions it's hard for her to cry and a physical sensation she doesn't feel temperatures as much her body feels cold she doesn't feel as connected to other people and so those sorts of that's why i see as like strength is out of alignment right seeing it as like not being vulnerable emotionally, not feeling in a polyvalent sense. I think we saw that. We see that with Voldemort. We see that with, you know, a lot of other villain right. figures in in fiction in general. This was an, a take that really made me think about that. I don't know if that... What do you think? I don't know. I don't know what I think <laughs> about this. I like this reading of it. I don't know. It's hard because I'm like, well, it doesn't really make being a demon seem like so bad other than the cold part. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, can I be a demon? This sounds really awesome (laughs) and great. You live forever. You do what you want. You have magic. Yeah. And you can't be like, you're not vulnerable. So you can't be hurt. So like, but you're not connected. Right. So you don't have memories. That's true. You know, so there's, uh, 
Well, you must have some because Bandura remembers Idan. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. I don't know. So I, I think th- I'm I'm interested to see where the story takes this. Right. But I, I do think it's a, you know, as a book one reflection, like that's all we've read. That's all right. we can go off of. I, I'm, I think it's a persuasive metaphorization. Right. Of what happens when you don't feel things. Right. I saw on Twitter, apparently if you get the, the book, if you buy the book, you should buy the book, um, like in hardcover, like a, a physical book, it has a preview for the next book already, <gasps> which you know I wouldn't have read because I don't want spoilers and I don't want to know so far ahead when I'm going to have to read it again. Do we know when the next book comes out? I'm not sure. I should have looked it up. I'll put it in the show notes when it does come out, but I'm guessing it must be done. So that's, yeah. that's good. I have a feeling that in the next book... Maya is going to be the villain. I mean, she's turning into a demon. Quite literally. Doesn't sound that bad. It's a little heavy handed, but yeah. (laughs) But appreciate it. Kind of, but she's like such a like good person. And like, we don't like throughout the story, we don't see her like morally struggling with much. She seems to almost always be doing the right thing. Other may, other than maybe like giving up her freedom for Edan, which I'm kind of like, even that is like, People would see that as good. And some uh, racial prejudice that we'll get to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and some other things. But <laughs> but for the most, like, she's not struggling personally. Like, she doesn't think what she's doing is bad. So it'll be interesting to see her maybe do some bad things. How, like, that will complicate things for her. Just have to wait and see. I guess so. Let's dive into more deep cuts, because just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, gender, and ability, and more. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Let's start with class. There are really large class divides in this world as it's been constructed. The palace is quite literally constructed to reinforce class, Um, and I have a quote from location 447 of the ebook <laughs> gotta cite your sources okay <laughs> i'm across from a librarian as quote the ascent i later learned was a way of keeping us in our place and reminding us we were far below emperor kanujin the son of heaven we're back into this divine right of kings type logic that separates the class system right which is especially difficult because in this particular instance when maya is climbing the stairs pretending to be her brother she's also pretending to be a person with disability and there's like no accessibility (laughs) none (laughs) like you're just fucked (laughs) have fun with those stairs yeah exactly i'd be like hey lorsa or whatever that guy's name is like can you just carry me up these stairs i'm not i'm not doing this (laughs) no we see conscription into the military to fight the emperor's war against the shansen so in in this sense i I honestly interpret this as like a different kind of class war already going on Mm -hmm. that people from the lower classes are forced to die to preserve economic and not to mention gender inequality. Yeah. When we see this very sharply in focus, when Maya and Idan are in like a forest and they're, I don't know where they are exactly, but they come upon like all the dead bodies of the people who died in the war because their bodies were just like frozen in time. That was a really impactful moment. Oh, my God. That I wasn't expecting. No, because the book, we should have probably, well, I'll do a content warning in the show notes. But, like, yeah, this book was a little, like, more than I thought it would be. 
mm-hmm. like triggering maybe. Yeah. And yeah. I think part of that is the decision that the publishing company made with how to market it, which I will get to later. Yeah. Yeah. Recently, we've been reading a lot of stories that happen to see palaces and take place in palaces uh, or courts in the case of Akamath. Um, and every time we read a story where part of it takes place in a palace, we see an abundance of excess, where that's food, resources, or clothes. And that's not much different in Spin the Dawn when we compare where Maya comes from to going to the palace. So lots of food, tons of resources for the tailors making the clothes. It's just like, too much of everything and that's really a distinction in class i think absolutely and some of maya's reflections are about being hungry and not Mm -hmm. having enough money for food and getting fucking harassed by the baker's son was and who's like holding material uh what stability holding food over her head as like if you married me you'd never go hungry like but i'm also like this is fucking harassment like oh yeah i would have taken those scissors and stabbed him in the face (laughs) and also the government should Yes. Do stuff so that that doesn't exist. Especially when they have forced people to fight in wars. Like, and in her home, her dad has lost his sons and his wife, and he's like grieving and not handling it well. And then her brother comes home and he can't work. Like, yeah, where's the disability? Yeah. Uh, where, like, where's taking care of people who are in your military? Yeah. Like, exactly. Where's the money for her siblings that died? Like, all sorts of things. Mm hmm let's talk about race let's i could be wrong here but i got the impression that the shansen were a different ethnic group and culturally distinct from the from alandi but they were not a different race so lady sarnai and lord sheena sina at least don't seem to be racialized differently in the text that was something i was unclear about okay i like i said i think i said earlier i was unsure what the shan Sen were in the grand scheme of things that wasn't really fleshed out other than that there was a war between them but and that they also that the shansen is like a title that gets passed down and it seemed to be like a almost like a feudal like a a military leader who may or may not support the emperor at various times throughout history hence why i wanted like a little bit more chronological background but a title that also isn't capitalized throughout the story so i was like is this a people or a person or a ethnic group like i just really wasn't sure and that wasn't explained maybe we'll get more in the next book because i'm also like um where's our story about um like lady sarnai and Zena? yeah Uh, like Something's going on between them and we don't know. And maybe mm-hmm. we'll like get a whole backstory on them and that would be really cool. But yeah. I was just like, what? <laughs> Actually, the a capitalonym. Did you watch the latest John Oliver? I did. <laughs> that It's like the name of a like the term for when something changes meaning when it's capitalized right. versus not. And I do think your point about the Shansen is a good one. Yeah. Being a capitalonym potentially. I don't know. Right. And I don't know. And maybe it's also a choice. There are people who don't capitalize their their proper noun names Mm -hmm. um so that's another layer to it that i'm just like i have no idea ballardons i'm profoundly skeptical of any group being called quote barbarians end quote because this is often rhetoric for demonizing or displacing indigenous groups who don't do things like colonizers or who don't do things like i don't know more capitalisty nations or whatever Mm mm-hmm I think the novel grapples with this because Maya has a positive personal 
uh, experience with the Ballardons in the no on the way to the mountains of the moon after the desert correct yes okay with the dawn right they have a good time together mm-hmm. i don't know they seem to connect on a personal level we also see one of them is bad yeah but like not all of them exactly and then also she loves her horse opal who's right. from Baladon, and or balar i think yeah i appreciated this little side story because we see maya challenging her prejudiced views well and i think the like mom of the group of ballardians she talked about how her husband like she wasn't from ballard i don't think but her mm-hmm. husband really wanted to travel around and they're traveling in caravans which i think there is we go like, again now that we know that like the roma people are descendant from asia like this could be a part of that as well mm-hmm. yeah I think race gets really complicated in this book from a non-Asian slash American perspective, like for me, because so often people see in America, see Asian as a monolith for all people from Asia. But they are just thinking of people from like China, Japan, and Korea, the people who are most often portrayed in the media. And who often, let's be real, aren't substantively differentiated from one another in like whitewashed media. Yes. But I think this disregards the umbrella term that the umbrella term of Asia spans um, many places with different cultures, fashions, food, and importantly, complexions. So I do commend Lim for showing the vastness of the people and landscape that are encapsulated in the term um, that we non-Asian people probably often take for granted. I don't think we specifically can speak to the prejudice and colorism that takes place in the culture that we aren't intimately familiar with and aren't a part of exactly. Um, but we'll link to some people who can speak to that in the show notes. We've talked about it before in some other books. So I think that'll be a good place for people to read about issues of race and culture within the Asian community. Yeah. And this is definitely a pass the mic moment for both of us as podcast hosts. So mm-hmm. we would really like to hear from you if this is, you know, an own voices experience and we, you know, yeah, we really want to hear from listeners. Agreed. Let's talk about gender. Ugh, gender. Profound gender inequities in Alandai, which I kind of expected, be, given that this book was marketed as like a Mulan's type thing, like women aren't allowed to do specific things in right. that story. So that's what I was expecting. Also, I guess the book maybe technically takes place in Imperial China. So like that was a long time ago. And as we have learned throughout history, long time ago equals gender inequality. Uh, oftentimes, <laughs> yeah. Or it can. Yeah. We see in the story that meritocracy is only afforded to men. And even then, it seems to be quite subjective. The tailors, Lady Sarnai, has to choose from, got to the competition based on their actual work as tailors, which was really cool and awesome because people should be rewarded and paid for their actual work. Mm -hmm. But then Lady Sarnai chooses the tailor who will be the best spy for her. So it's like meritocracy but then like never mind (laughs) but also she's in a super shitty situation so i don't blame her right you know yeah it's not totally like all on her but i'm also like maybe don't spy on people just like make connections with them and like figure it out (laughs) Mm -hmm. words use your words use your words lady sarnai says that she was raised equally like in her household was Mm -hmm. raised equally to her brothers yes learning we see her with arrow (laughs) hunting hawks and stuff like that which was like whoa she's trying to kill you don <laughs> she's making moves yeah she hates magic points for i guess uh committing yeah to making a a serious statement true and 
Um, but what, back to what I was saying, Lady Sarnai was raised equally with her brothers, but then her father betrayed everything he supposedly stood for by using her as a pawn for political gain. And we hear Lady Sarnai talks about this when at in that scene at night, right? Mm-hmm. When she sees who she thinks is um, Keton, mm-hmm. but is really Maya, and talks about how women are basically just pawns. Right. And doesn't know then that Maya is Maya. And she is like understanding of the dynamics at play. Right. I thought this was really interesting that she was raised equally to her brothers and still she's only good for getting married and making babies. Mm-hmm. There's double standard even when people pretend otherwise. Lady Sarnai is seen as being quote unquote difficult for not just doing what her father asked and marrying the emperor, even though she's obviously in love with someone else and doesn't want to marry him. So I'm like, fuck off. Don't, she shouldn't have to marry him. Yeah. Maya as the obedient daughter, quote unquote, and also the strong one. We hear this refrain for both of those um, descriptors several times throughout the novel, um, referring to Maya. But at the same time, this character has a lot going on. She's learning a lot, has a lot of unknowns, has a lot of like, I don't know, trauma that she's working through. Her brothers died in the war. She can't be herself. She lives in a world where gender is profoundly unequal. Her, Her mom, mom died. died. Her, she's, you know, struggling to feed herself and her family. Lots of stuff going on there. Very relatable to me as like a, like, I don't have those things going on, but <laughs> as, I don't know, just check in on your strong friends is what I'm saying. Some people don't present confused or don't present like they have issues, but check in on your strong friends. Yes. Uh, she turns out, like Maya turns out to be quite strong physically as a character and in a funny turn of events, we get a female character trained to an actual demon, something I think many of the stories we read so far have been safe for, like, the boys. Right. Like, uh, Nikolai, the Darkling. Like, oh, good point. It's always the dudes who are like, let me turn into the bad guy. So we get a, a lady bad guy. So, yeah, I think Maya might turn into the vi- villain in the next book. And I would like to see her rain down hell on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to be fire and brimstone. Reminds me of Rin from the Poppy War in that way, I guess. Yes, it does a bit. And I'm here for it. <laughs> this story, I think, as we've touched on a bit, is very binary in the way it portrays how men and women are supposed to look and act, which in and of itself is very misogynistic and super frustrating. And cis-normative. Yeah. Yes. We get some hints at possible homophobia in the in the society at large yes which we'll talk about probably later yeah but super binary and all the expectation bullshit is just really frustrating but i think that Lim did a good job like delving into that a bit right fleshing out an oppressive society mm-hmm. yeah well and seeing like where it would come from from just different perspectives in class even with um maya and lady sarnai obviously their experiences with misogyny are very different um and i appreciated that yeah that's a good point like a race or a class gender mm-hmm. and race yeah intersectional approach know. yeah <laughs> in a strange turn of events needlework is considered men's work in this world I think it's often seen as a women's craft, um, but often when we think about like the quote unquote great designers and dressmakers, they're men, which is an odd dynamic. It's only womanly when it's done for craft and not for work. 
which is super frustrating. Yeah. The same thing happens with chefs. Yes. For example. Mm -hmm. Or like housework versus architecture. Mm -hmm. Or I really want to point out Sylvia Federici's work. She's an academic and specifically her book, Caliban and the Witch, which is expanding critique and um, scholarship about the development of capitalism and specifically how gendered labor is necessary for capitalism and yet not valued under that very same system. So Caliban and the Witch might be fun to like do a little, a slow read along or something to discuss about a little bit more, discuss a little bit more. Cause I think that would really push our um, specifically gender class um, critique that we do for books in a, in a good direction. Let's talk about ability. I'm not really sure what's happening there with Keton's injury and the, and resulting disability. Obviously I know that war changes people's lives irrevocably and, um, sometimes that's like physically often, right? With war, with casualties or, and injuries that are inflicted. But then the magic potion at the end with Keton and he can walk and that makes him all happy too. I don't like this idea of cure is really complicated for me. We talked about Eli Clare previously, but we'll put that in the show notes again. And of course, I see that the fictional world that's constructed in the novel is profoundly ableist, right? You, Jesse, you just mentioned the stairs not right. too long ago. Um, like that's how the world is constructed. And I'm not saying that against the author or anything, right? Because I think that I, I don't think the author agrees with that. Right. Um, I guess I just wish that this physical disability were handled with more nuance. Cause there's also, I know we're going to get into the question of possibly trans erasure and so there's like the what happens when you're pretending to be disabled sort of thing there's a whole lot of baggage at least culturally in the u.s i'm thinking about like what happens when you're pretend i don't know this narrative of pretending to i don't know the the really problematic and damaging narrative of like the welfare queen right? right what happens when you're pretending to be marginalized in certain ways except that that woman was working against a system that didn't that was going to fuck her over anyway. Right. Do you know what I mean? So like, um, or like I'm like not speaking very coherently or knowledgeably about this, but, but it's kind of like when you think about people with invisible disabilities where like they can walk for shorts amount of time, but they need a handicap pass and people yell at them or give them a hard time because they see them walking and they think they don't deserve that. I see that a lot in like the disability subreddit. Right. Um, or discourse about straws, right? Some people right. need straws. Yeah. And the ableism surrounding that. There's also been a lot of that in the disability subreddit, which I would recommend following if you don't know anything about disability or like the wide range of disability. There's a lot of people having like very like timely discussions about that with like straws and handicap parking and like, access to accessibility like in the workplace access to fucking healthcare because yeah, that's another part that. that's another part of this book that yeah. like they don't have access to healthcare right so i think it's it's i wish that ability had been handled better in the book especially with Keton. i think when i was reading it i kind of got like matthew from downton abbey vibes like hurt in the war can't walk and all of a sudden he's fine mm-hmm. but at the same time i don't feel like it was handled the best and also the fact that Adon has to tell Maya like put a pebble in your shoe so you remember I think that and then no one else really noticed anyway no one else really noticed 
um, I think just goes to show how in the world mm-hmm. we're talking about. Right. Um, just like underscores the ableism, I guess, right. that like people aren't really paying attention. Exactly. Yeah. Not paying attention until something uh, works against them. Right. You know, like people are like, save the sea turtles. And yes, I agree. But like someone needs a straw, give them their fucking straw. <laughs> like it shouldn't be like there's I, there's been a lot of complaints actually in the disability subreddit about like paper straws and how like they don't work and how that is not helpful for people who actually need them well like they dissolve yes after a while or they like they're not not everyone with every disability is going to be served by a paper straw right exactly and so i just think accessibility is really important um and the way this was handled in this book was just like not great for me yeah also, speaking of accessibility, I think we should be honest and transparent and say that we have dropped the ball on getting transcripts up, and that is something that we want to work on, and we are committed to doing that, and we apologize and own up to the fact that it's taking us longer yes. than we want. And accessibility on the website, working on that too. Yep. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take some liberties and do some shipping of our own. I appreciated the um, development of sibling relationships a little bit in the book. You would. I know. (laughs) I love my brother. Shout out to Jack. Um, I don't know if he listens. I'll tell him to listen to this episode. I I guess I, I just like when we don't just flesh out romantic relationships particularly in ya Mm -hmm. because i think that that's a little simplistic there's um not like you have to go like go full relationship anarchy on this but that but you can you can for like the aromantic people exactly don't want that why don't we get that we just need friendship stories ours is a great one (laughs) (laughs) so true (laughs) but there's um life is defined by a lot of other relationships besides like sex and romance true so i i liked that we saw maya in her relationship with her father myra in her relationship with each of her different siblings because her siblings are different so i i liked that too the little bit more nuance about how you're not always your sibling relationship isn't going to be the same with every one of right. your brothers right or siblings yeah i'm not a fan of my siblings so i was like eh, i don't really care about this part <laughs> <laughs> respect <laughs> It took me a while to come around to the Maya Adon ship. I'm not going to lie. I saw it coming. Yes. From a long ways away. Okay. Um, And I don't know if I'm still 100% there because of the night. There seems to be a lot of naivete with both parties going on. Adon or Maya's super young. I actually don't know how old she is. 17, 18? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. Um, and she's making things about like, yeah, I'll always love you, always be with you. It just seems like a little young. Right. And then Adon, who's like never been in a relationship before. So like, or it doesn't seem like because emperors aren't supposed to like love. Enchanters. And Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe not emperors either. <laughs> yeah, right. So the relationship, I guess, doesn't strike me as mature and thought out. But then again, that's not really how love works all the time, is it? And that's maybe true. I'm just heartless. No, I'd like to talk about this more when we do Kill Your Darlings and about this like YA trope of like 500 year old dude with teenage girl. But I really liked my Annie Dawn regardless. <laughs> <laughs> I just like their banter and they were just so funny and like cute. And I was like, oh, I forget like how 
I've been in a relationship for like 12 years almost. So I forget how like cutesy and like sweet they are at the beginning. <laughs> like that honeymoon <laughs> phase. It's been a while. <laughs> I'm not saying it's been a while. I'm just saying like things are just so much more like tender in the beginning. And I think it's because you don't know each other very well. And that's fine. And you like want to put your best foot forward and be like your best person possible. And not now I'm like just see me for like the trash that I am. <laughs> if you don't love it now like it's just too late and now you're like well I haven't or I'm not gonna speak for you for yeah. me it's like well I haven't showered in four days so yeah. here I am yeah that does not speak to me but you're <laughs> fine it's fine we can still be friends that's true <laughs> consent is sexy did you notice this I was like it was it was well go ahead <laughs> Adon asks to court Maya which like I laughed but at the same time, that sentiment is really fucking important because consent is huge. And so she accepts the flowers, but then Adon doesn't take that as, okay, this is a yes, because he knows that she isn't familiar with that tradition right. and that sh- that doesn't necessarily mean yes for her in her culture, accepting these flowers from a, from another man because it's super hetero. Right. Um, but then... She goes back. So she like takes her time. She pauses. She then does say a yes clearly, at which point Adon, who has backed off before the yet clear yes, who steps back up. At another point, he asks to kiss her and she says yes. No means no. Yes means yes. Enthusiastic consent for the win. I thought this was handled like props to the author for handling this in the novel. Especially because I feel like we often get this idea that in hetero couples um relationships it's like normal for the dude to like pursue you even when you're like I don't know like let me think about things or if you say no they're like I just finished watching rewatching Downton Abbey and I forgot how like Mary told that guy like I don't want to date you anymore like I don't want to do this I know we had sex but like fuck off and he's like no and I'm just like what Ugh. the fuck like this this is harassment this Ugh. is terrible like and so many movies and popular culture like really push that idea like just keep trying until she says yes until she gives in like it'll be fine it's like a war of attrition yeah and i'm like this is not okay and we see a foil to that in this very novel with the baker's son right who keeps like proposing marriage to her and all this bullshit like yeah mm-mm. really frustrating but i think it's really sweet i like that he like asked to court her and like I said, like, it's I don't, so cute. I don't know how like modern day, like in this present time in 2019 relationships work. But like, do people still like ask people to be their like girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, whatever? Like, is that a thing? Is a DTR a thing? Define the relationship. I really, conversation. <laughs> I really don't know. My partner asked me to be their girlfriend, like, oh my because God. we were in high school when this <laughs> happened. And so like, that was just like normal it sounds so like courtly love i know like centuries ago yeah but we were like kids like i mean we were both 18 but you know like we were young i just wonder if that's, that's so happens sweet now i know isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's like nostalgia for me <laughs> but like does that still for happen? like pre-online dating mainly yeah like i don't know how online dating works i just assume you get dick pics and messages that say like dtf are you up (laughs) that's what i have learned from social social media twitter every person i know who's online dating (laughs) we don't know i don't know (laughs) yeah 
maybe you know maybe you have like a secret like tinder relationship i do not i do not (laughs) those are my favorite our relationship advice where they're like i found my person's tinder account i'm like i didn't know and i'm like break up with them like what are you doing unless you've had a conversation about polyamory and everyone's on the same page but then it wouldn't be in relationship advice (laughs) right yeah that's true it's always like they just needed like a confidence boost and i'm like that's this is mm -mm. y'all need to talk to each other yes it's always you need to talk you need to talk communication is key or leave them consent sounds real sexy (laughs) communication is key we stand by that yes yes enthusiastic consent always Okay, so I'm not really sure what to make of a thing. And I think this is where this belongs, but I'm also kind of like, I'm just going to put it here. I'm ready. I'm here for you. Okay. In this story, we see Maya dressing as a boy due to the symptoms of her society and not because she feels like she is a boy, but to get ahead in society. And this is a little complicated because it's a retelling of an actual thing like this story of Mulan but I feel like there may have been some implications for trans the trans community and what it means to be transgender in this case. I'm not transgender. So like if I get anything wrong, please like yell at me. I can take it. You are cisgender. So yes, yes, I am. So <laughs> a person is not transgender b- to get ahead in society um, because they feel like they were, but because they were, feel like they were assigned the wrong gender at birth. I'm not saying this book is making the case that what is actually happening is trans people saying they're trans to get ahead. But it does feel like a sort of erasure and not just of trans people, but also non-binary people because the world is written as so intrinsically binary. This also applies a bit to Maya using a cane and pretending to have a disability. Yes, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. Yeah. And all I could think about was those punk ass rich kids pretending to have learning disabilities to get accommodations for extra time on the ACT, SAT, even though their parents were like bribing colleges for them to go anyway. So like who the fuck cares about their ACT, SAT scores? Also, standardized testing is bullshit. Also, you have a bajillion dollars. You'll be fine. Yes. So this was like really complicated for me. And I don't think when we're reading the book through today's critical lens and like in not like our present political climate, like not that kind of bullshit, but just thinking about the present day. I'm not sure this was handled very well. I felt uncomfortable Mm. about it. Yeah. Conflicted feelings about that for sure. Yeah. Another thing that um, I guess I was missing a little bit in the book. And the, I think I do think this belongs to the shipwrecked is I really like what. So Mulan is came out. The Disney movie came out when I was young and I love that movie. I knew the entire soundtrack and all that stuff. And then what I also love is now that I'm older, what the Internet has done with bisexual icon Lee Shang, which I'm, we can link to this in the show notes. I stand by sexual icon Lee Shang. And so where this comes from is the fact that there is chemistry between him. The, I'm talking about the Disney, Disney movie specifically. There's chemistry between Mulan, both when she's pretending to be a man and when she's like dresses in accordance with her gender, mm-hmm. right? She's a woman. And so there's ten, there's like sexual chemistry between Lee Shang and Mulan when she's doing both of those things. Hence, bisexual icon Li Shang, right? So, and then the disappointing news that the Disney remake isn't going to have a bisexual icon Li Shang. What? <laughs> or equivalent. I, yeah, we can post to that. In the sh- I can link to that in the show notes. But um, Adon always knows Maya's right. a girl. So yes. we never have any of that bisexuality or queer implication. 
for th- this relationship. I think we get it like a tiny bit in that um, the kitchen maid, Amy, Ami, Ami. probably Ami, uh-huh. um, thinks that Idan likes Kitan because Kitan. Oh, you're right. Thinks that Kitan is, I mean, that Maya is Kitan and Idan likes like like Kitan. So, but then, that's like the only implication we get. That happens with Lady Sarnai too. Yes. Remember that? About how um, she was like, you're a good looking boy or mm-hmm. whatever. And the emperor or the enchanter likes those. Right. But then it also is equating home, like homosexuality, potential homosexuality mm-hmm. or what's perceived as homosexuality with predation. Yeah. Which is really fucking problematic too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Feelings. Yeah. It was complicated. Right before I started reading this book, I saw a tweet of someone who is obviously reading an arc and they didn't talk about this book specifically um and i'll try and find the tweet i'm not sure if i will be able to because like, twitter like, is a trash fire. it's a black hole <laughs> um but someone tweeted a transgender person tweeted about a reading a book where the main character is presenting as a gender that they do not feel that they are to get ahead in society and how they thought that was wrong so once i started reading this book i was like oh I didn't think about how Milan kind of feels like that kind of story mm-hmm. when you think about it through today's time. Right. And I, I, I think that's a valid interpretation, especially from like, if you're a trans person. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's really fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> this, this society is profoundly transphobic. Right. Um, and I can see why this story would um, come across that way. Yeah. So authors do better. Think about it. Maybe get some sensitivity readers might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Or I guess, Maybe even just grappling with it yeah, explicitly in the novel somehow. Yes. I think maybe sometimes when a book is set in a different time, especially so far back that we're like, no technology, like lack of communication with other people. Binary default, hetero default. Yeah. They might think it's easier to just like not talk about these things. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it really, representation is so, so important that, I don't know, it really, when you read this, and if you feel like it's offensive, like that's hurtful. I don't know. You yeah. Sh- you should still deal with these things and setting a book back in time is not a good reason to not deal with it. Exactly. And, and going off of what you just said, which I think is really important that I like what you just said is really important and going off of that, just because you don't explicitly address something in a novel mm-hmm. doesn't mean, or a cultural product or whatever, a right. movie, whatever, doesn't mean that the text isn't saying something right. about gender exactly. or about sexuality. It is saying things about class, about race, about gender, about sexuality, right. but it, um, about cisness, about transness. I don't know. It doesn't like get a pass, I guess. Right. Well, and that's kind of what we're doing with the podcast. Like reading things through a critical lens doesn't like what we're saying doesn't mean that's the author's intention. No, not at all. But the books belong to us now that they're out in the world. And what we read into it is very important to like, commentary and discussion Mm -hmm. i think that the the article that i think you sent me on was it on twitter or something like that about the quote-unquote negativity of ya twitter oh my i think that goes i think that is relevant here Mm -hmm. right because the our, our whole project of like critically reading things is to like really get into it and to know that these things are really complicated Mm -hmm. and that there can be hurt without intention right and that doesn't mean that and 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 i guess like exploring what accountability really looks like i guess yeah and i'll link to that article about the um 
about why Twitter and cancel culture. And it's hard because I'm, you're right. And the article talks about how like, just because this feels mean to the authors and who are having to cancel their books or whatever, doesn't mean that we're not wrong. <laughs> like we're right. Like these books feel inherently racist to those people or transphobic or homophobic or, you know, whatever. You have to take that seriously because the readers are going to interpret it that way. Right. That's important. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, um, I'm glad that there's more exchange about that happening. Me too. I think that that's really positive. Mm-hmm. And I hope that this pushes the publishing industry and writers and um, in a more liberatory direction. Yeah. And it'll help if they just like maybe hire people who are not all white women. Yeah. And I'm going to, I think I'm also going to link in the show notes to the um, Kimberly Crenshaw's episode of her podcast, Intersectionality Matters, about apologies. Okay. Because this also, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of um, exploration happening in social justice communities. And writing right now about what accountability looks like, what justice looks like, what apologies are, how do you actually um, take responsibility for what you've, for the harm you've inflicted. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm reading a book right now about the emergence of nurturance culture. I can link to that um, in the show notes too. But this is a, this conversation is happening right now in the much wider sphere, but beyond YA publishing. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that we're, um, we can bring that into dialogue. Yeah, for sure. Also, we'll link to uh, some statistics about the publishing industry. I think that's really important. Um, Lee and Lowe books have done a lot of work to find out like what the landscape of publishing looks like. And it's it's real embarrassing. Yeah, so. like a state of the question sort of thing. Yeah, like how people are getting paid, what the it looks mm-hmm. like, what the state of publishing looks like as far as the people who are working in there. It's very white, very white women. <laughs> Y'all ruin everything. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Sexy times. Classic YA fade outs. Yeah. And uh, like, it's not, I'm not, I don't know, criticizing necessarily. I'm just commenting. And I guess um, doing this podcast has been good because I'm learning a little bit about my own preferences as a reader. And that doesn't mean I don't think I can critique like things uh, reasonably or whatever. But I guess I'm learning that my personal reading preferences, even for YA, is that I wish that there were fewer euphemisms around wanting to have sex. Right. Because this is another coming off of the point that we were just talking about. Just because you don't explicitly address it doesn't mean you're not saying things about sex. Right. Like we know they're having sex. Exactly. Like they become flesh or something. Like they become <laughs> flesh on flesh and yeah. things like that. I just, all of the burning in the core business, it's just not my cup of tea. I just, I, I kind of want a thing to be called a thing. Yeah. We should read some like new adult books, although there's not that much fantasy new adult, which is unfortunate. If if you have any, please send me recommendations because I would love to read it. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, because they, the sex is explicit, like above Sarah J. Mass, and you would probably love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. That's not like a yeah, yeah, yeah. a critique. <laughs> no, no, no. And I think you're probably right. But I just then I how does how do age appropriate non euphemistic depictions of sex happen in YA because sex is happening in this book but it's just not happening it's happening euphemistically or fade out wise you know what I mean so like maybe we can link to some sex educators right also in the show notes because I know I want to learn more about this especially because I think it's really relevant for YA for sure and it's hard because when I was looking at um, the information we got for the book when we got the arc it said the book was for people 12 and up Mm. and that's difficult because I'm like 
how explicit do you want a book that a 12 year old's going to read, which is included in the books that a 17 year old's going to read because that's all in YA. Yeah. And so that makes it hard. Like, how do we decide what books kids can read? Exactly. And especially if these books are about education in right. a larger sense, which I think that they are, mm-hmm. right? Ethically and things right. like that. Sex is a thing to talk about. Right. I think that there can be age-appropriate conversations. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answers necessarily. No. I'm going to try and learn more. Well, and it's like a moral conundrum a little bit. Because it's yeah. like, do you want a 12-year-old to have sex? Should they know enough to want to do that thing? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I don't know. I, I want to say no. Yeah. Like, that seems too young. But yeah. I'm like, at what age is it allowable? Like, what do we as a, and as a society? And at hard. what age are people making choices about their own bodies or right. being socialized or mm-hmm. maybe coerced through socialization into making choices about their bodies that, right. you know, maybe they wouldn't make under other circumstances. It's super delicate. And I don't think why is getting into it enough, I guess I is my point. Yeah. Like you can't, are we just going to assume that Maya knows what sex is? Yeah. And how? And how? Yeah. And like, what about safe sex? Right. Why does a really bad job of this in particular of like not talking about contraception in any way, shape or form or STIs? Yeah. All, all of those things. Need- Do those just magically not exist in these worlds? I mean, like, that down, might be probably. Well. <laughs> that, that might very well be the case. Yeah. Right. But I just wish that we heard a bit more explicitly right. how that's working. Because I don't think it's built into like the world building or the exposition or character development mm-hmm. in YA in general. Right. And I think the only book I can actually think of is Akamath. Well, Akatar. Um no, yeah, Akamath, because Feyre is like taking a potion to make sure she doesn't get pregnant. Yeah. And that's like yeah. that's all. But we also know Resan's had sex with like other people. So I'm kinda like like where's your doctor's mm-hmm. printout i would be like i need that first <laughs> have you been tested okay great yeah but also i need proof because i don't believe you yeah people are liars mm-hmm. <laughs> i believe no one yeah we need more like honest discussions surrounding sex in the books that like they're teenagers they're gonna have sex well but they're teenagers and this is i guess is a different part of shipwrecked or sexy times or both right that they're not both teenagers one is several hundred years old. <laughs> yes. And I guess it's also difficult when you think about it because like, I don't think it's the majority and I can look up the statistics because I know they're out there and I've read them in different places. But like a lot of the people reading YA are not teens. So maybe the burden of knowing what contraception is and safe sex and knowing about STIs is put on the older readers without thinking about the fact that young people are reading these books too. Yeah which should not be the case since they are written for young people. <laughs> in theory. In theory. We're not young people anymore, but... <laughs> <laughs> we are spinstery. Spinstery. Love it. Yes. We vindicate the spinster. <laughs> now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. The prologue text disoriented me when I began the book. The one that it like the very beginning, it's quote, asked me to spin the finest yarn or thread and I can do it faster than any man, even with my eyes closed. Yet ask me to tell a lie and I will stumble and falter to think of one. I have never had a talent for spinning tales. I'm just kind of like, why prompt the reader to think that she's not good about telling stories before I'm about to read a story she's telling? Hmm. 
I mean, I get the like whole spinning a yarn. That's like that pun or that like double meaning that it can yeah. mean telling a story. And she literally does fiber arts, which I think is awesome. Um, but this did, when I went back and read the prologue again, after I finished the story, it made a lot more sense. Yes. I think when I read the prologue, I was like, oh, I'm going to love this book because it was just like, to me, it was like beautiful. And then she talks about like falling in love with this boy, even though I'm like, Idan is not a boy. He's a 500 year old man. He's like a grandpa five times. (laughs) Um, But I really like the prologue. So it's kind of funny that you're like, nah, no thanks. Just stylistically, it didn't land for me at the beginning. And then when I went back, I was like, oh, this makes sense. It doesn't really fit. And I don't think we need it is the problem. Mm, mm -hmm. But maybe this has something to do with a cultural way of storytelling. Like, I don't I haven't read the actual ballad of Mulan or whatever, or like any I don't think any Chinese folk tales. Oh, we should put that on. Yeah. TBR. Yeah. Um. But maybe this is like how they normally start. Yeah, it's like a it's it's a framing mm-hmm. device for the narrative. Or even like when you think about Shakespeare, like Romeo and Juliet starts with like them basically telling you the whole thing that's going to happen at the beginning. Like, that's weird. That's two fucking... star-crossed lovers take their life. Yeah, <laughs> like that's fucking weird. Why would that's like spoiler alert, dude. Like, why <laughs> would you do that? Um, so I kind of like that she kind of told us what the story was about and then just like got into it. Yeah. I think you had a similar impression from what mm-hmm. we were talking about pre-recording, but I noticed that Spin the Dawn seemed to mature in both style and substance as the text progressed. Agreed. More um, like the writing seemed to mature The as far as um, like, I don't know, rhetorical figures, descriptions, those sorts of things. The There is more violence. There's more Dark Knight of the Soul. There's more character development later on. There's more sex later on. There's more, yeah, feelings, thoughts, all of that. It's almost like we get to see Maya grow during the story. Yeah, which is commendable for the author mm-hmm. to show that narratively. Um, of course, this wasn't linear or for me. Like there are moments where I thought that um, the book regressed for me and like progress isn't linear. So that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Right. For example, at the end when Maya has changed so much and then the exposition go back, goes back to referring to her as a girl and Adon as a boy. That doesn't land for me because he's several hundred years old, at least, like you said. Right. Um, the boy thing didn't work, in in my opinion. Agreed. I was just like, he's not, though. He's 500. That's what I mean about when I said in Shipwrecked about, like, I'm not... It, the naivete. This right. is one of those aspects for me. Yeah. The overarching structure of the novel was clear, and I think that's really helpful for following the plot. Part one, the trial. Part two, the journey. Part three, the oath. They make sense retrospectively. They organize things. And I appreciate that the author thought this through. Yeah. yeah. Might seem like a little, I don't know, three act e, but I think it really works in this case. Well, and stories are often like the three act model is what they follow. So Mm -hmm. like, why not? Or like for script writing and stuff, it works. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason that those things are conventions. Well, and it's what we want. We want a beginning, middle and end. If we are missing one of those, we're like, what the fuck's going on here? Exactly. And it's like experimental and yeah. Yeah. Different. I'm not saying anything bad about experiment, like experimentality, I guess, but it's not my thing, which is fine. Yeah. This might be my, one of my bigger points, I think of the whole episode that I would really want to emphasize. I understand the publisher's decision to market Spin the Dawn as Mulan plus Project One Way, but I disagree. I disagree because 
This is a text that is much more ambitious than that. That's a superficial characterization. Yes. I don't even... Where did you even read that? I did not see that. I saw it on Goodreads or something oh, like that. I must have missed it. On the main description. And maybe I'm like... I don't know. Maybe that was like just one featured review. I can't remember. I'll try and find it. I wonder if part of that is because I remember a few months ago, there was some stuff on Twitter about... As there is. Yeah, as there is. Um, oh, I think when we were at the conference, actually, there was a white author who was doing a Mulan retelling and people were not happy with it um, for all kinds of racially insensitive reasons. Yeah, we should mention Colorado Teen Literature Conference is where we were. Yes. People were pushing this story as if you want a Mulan retelling, read this instead. Mm. So Mm -hmm. maybe some of it has come out of the fact that... Like capitalizing on that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Which like, I get it. I want, Mm -hmm. I know that they want to sell this book. Right. That's what I mean by I understand the decision, Mm -hmm. but it's shortchanging the novel for me. Especially because that Mulan meets Project Runway is really only in part one of the novel. And also I think that that's a very explicit appeal to people of our generation who would have watched Mulan as kids mm-hmm. and who are familiar with what Project Runway is. And okay, I don't know what Project Runway is and I've never well, watched it. It's like it. a fashion competition. Yeah, I guess that's what I assumed. Exactly. Just like, like, you know, you know, because it's like circulates in yeah. the culture. Even yeah, if you true. haven't, even if you're not like a devotee. Yeah, yeah. Because culture is everywhere. Right. It, it just shows like this is the age they're going for too. Although I think I feel like a little uncomfortable with it as well because it's like, here is a, a Chinese thing that you might know of and let's mix it with something American that you definitely know. Right. And I'm kind of like, mm. and also it's in a, they probably have a, a lot of this because I think a lot of the reading public is white. Yes. Also have access to, they probably haven't read the original ballad. No. They probably aren't familiar like us with any other Chinese folk tales. Right. Access to the whitewashed Disney version mm-hmm. of this traditional Chinese folk tale. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, they're capitalizing on that. They know yeah. their audience. Like, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying is I understand it. It's not, it's not not effective. Right. It's not ineffective. Yes. And I think you'll get like a good mix of people who would read this book based on that like tagline alone. Like, I know it's really important to have like your one sentence elevator pitch for a book. And so Mulan meets Project Runway is like quick and easy and people get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Um. Yeah, I just want to say that, like, this book is way cool in a lot of other ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, On that note, I really like the descriptions of the (laughs) clothing in this book. We're so wonderful. I'm not a huge fashion person at all, and I have trouble picturing these types of things sometimes um, where I have to often look up, like, what would this thing look like, even though the author has described it. Um, But I think Lim does an amazing job at making the fashion elements accessible to someone who might not have any knowledge in that area. I would agree with that, especially about the descriptions. I think that's some of Lim's best writing on a stylistic level in this text. Really beautiful stuff. And I um, respect, like capital letters, respect the demonstration of a bat's breadth of knowledge about the craft of needlework and design and drawing and knitting and spinning. And I super admire the revindication of fiber arts because I don't think the people who do this get enough credit. Um, I I think it goes back to like the gendered history of what labor is valued and what labor isn't, especially under capitalism. And I would say that the novel didn't rely on, maybe it was more legible to us as like non-Asian 
people who aren't familiar with what the like terms are Mm -hmm. for the different types of clothing because something girls of paper and fire did for example is it was just like nah i'm gonna use the real word for the like i'm gonna use i'm gonna say raccoon and if you don't know what that is like that's on you right um so i guess maybe that would be my one Mm -hmm. caveat yeah because they're making like shawls and dresses only right and skirt they talk about skirts but i'm like in the traditional london style and i I think it would have been cool to really dig a little like a little bit deeper and obviously like grain of salt i'm like the whitest white lady so like (laughs) what does my opinion matter to be karen and you'll be like oh my god i mean it practically is um but so like what i mean obviously at the end of the day my hot take on this is not that important yeah i think this is also a good time to note that i didn't think about this until just right like right this second like literally how cool it is to see like people of color being the ones doing the the fiber arts um yeah that's a really good point particularly cogent right now like with ravelry kicking off people who support the current administration um like banning all posts supporting the 45 yes um posts supporting them uh patterns that have to do with them oh wow yeah which mm-hmm. is something I 100% stand by. And I mean, white supremacists can fuck off. Like, I don't, I don't care <laughs> like, yep. that your feelings are hurt, that you're, you're so fragile in your whiteness that you're like, woe is me. Like your life has been whatever. Um, I have so many feelings. Um, <laughs> that on top of reading like, for white fragility right now, I'm like, cry me your white tears. Like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is like why I'm not having any of that GWP yeah. Biden business with exactly. the debate last night. Mm-mm. Yeah. So we'll link to some stuff about Ravelry that have been like great. There's been just, just been a lot in the like knitting community recently, like dealing with the racism in that community. And there have been a lot of people writing about it and talking about it and like yeah. doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll link to some of them and their work and like the statement from Ravelry about yeah. getting rid of those people. And going off of what you said, thank you for bringing that up. That is super relevant right now. And something that both of us care about right. like as knitters, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, but also I think this in the context of global capitalism, because I'm me, so I'm bringing it up yeah. is that a lot of our clothes I guarantee the clothes I'm making right now were made by non-white people. Oh. Right? Because companies exploit the labor of specifically tons of people from all sorts of different Asian countries to make cheaper clothing specifically for more developed nations in the global north. Yeah. And that's really fucking awful. Yeah. You know? And so there are a lot of people doing doing this fiber art work who Mm -hmm. aren't getting the recognition. Yeah, and there's a person I follow on Instagram. Or paid. Yeah, or paid that I will link to. Um, she t- talks a lot about fast fashion and like buying like these poorly made clothes that will just end up in landfills yep. um, and how to like better build your wardrobe in a way that is environmentally friendly. Yeah, my plan is like when I'm president in like five years, if your companies are somewhere else, you have to pay them the American wages and we're going to just like raise them. I think that's... Bam. Like... Fuck off. Like, pay people a livable wage. Yeah. Like, don't move your companies overseas so that you can pay people nothing. You have to pay them the same. Just because you can't pay them less doesn't mean you should pay them less. No. And when I'm president, you won't be allowed. (laughs) In my perfect country. That's a game we play sometimes. (laughs) Okay. We've touched on this a couple of times. 
uh, the Y trope of a dude who's hundreds of years old falling in love with a teenage girl. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I have like really complicated feelings about this, uh-huh. especially like when you think back to how long this has happened, like been happening. And I think like my first instance of this is Twilight, which like I loved it when it came out. Like we too. all loved it when it came out. But like when you think back to it now, I'm like, oh my God, it was complete and utter white trash. <laughs> like not in the derogatory sense but like a white person writing trash like it was super white um and i hated it and she like included a black person who fought for the confederacy so like fuck off <laughs> um anyways tangent um the older i get the more uncomfortable i get with this trope especially when the guy seems like a man like don is not a boy, boy like <laughs> like Cardin might be super old but he also seems like a broody teenager in a lot of ways That's like a good point yeah that seems fine and i actually don't remember if he's old or not i think he is i don't remember it don seems like a grown-ass adult man so sometimes it leaves me with like a bad feeling and i think the reason this trope is so popular is that we like to add a sense of maturity to the story without the characters seeming like john green-esque little shitheads but like i still (laughs) feel super weird about it i only read one john green book and i'm like these teenagers are so fucking annoying (laughs) like I can't read any more of it. I'm sure he's a great author. I just can't do it. But oh, it's just so frustrating to me. And it just seems like... It's something that YA uses and falls back on without really interrogating. Well, And because, that's not adding a particular person. No. Just the trend in general. I mean, SJM does it. It's in Akatar. Yeah. It's in... Yeah, but at least she's an adult. She's like over yeah, 18. That's yeah, that's true. The problem for me is I'm like... We don't... I don't know how young this character is. No. And it's hard because like our standard is 18 and like, what's the difference between being 17 and 364 days and being 18? Like what's yeah. the cutoff there? Like that's like, I don't know. But also I'm like, you have to think about the fact that like, I'm not saying this is glorifying pedophilia, but in some ways I'm like, Hey, these laws are in place to protect young people. And at a certain point, like this is going to get really uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me and for like, other people because as soon as they just get it's complicated yeah because as soon as they get to like the wrong side of young we're gonna be like whoa that's too much but like at where is that point and i think it's a moving target mm-hmm. this is what makes it a really hard conversation to have exactly and who is it's a moving target for certain people more than others right like mm-hmm. for example with the r kelly thing like yeah weren't listening to under to black women yeah right but are listening to you know other people yeah yeah about r kelly Yes. You know, so like whose voices when this becomes a problem are actually listened to, I think is another thing to have in mind. Well, it'll be white people. Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I think there's a like, race component too here. Yeah, for sure. I'm just, I feel like complicated about it. Very. I think it's because I'm getting older and I'm like, like, why the fuck would you want to date a teenager? Like you're an old person. <laughs> like that just seems weird. Hmm. But hmm. I don't know. It's, it's complicated. I don't know. But then also we're on the like, yes, like enthusiastic consent of yeah. people like have domain over their bodies, mm-hmm. you know? So I. But like at what point again do they? It's complicated. You know? It's yeah. super complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I have no answers to yeah. this question that I'm posing. I'd love to hear other people's thoughts. Maybe some actual teenagers. Like, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, please. Teenagers. Where yeah. are you? Yeah. On Snapchat, which I'm not. Yeah. It's all around complicated. Where I don't are the know. teenagers? I really want to hear from the teenagers. Yeah. I mean, on Snapchat, you're probably right. I don't know. That might not be true anymore. Who knows? <laughs> there Tumblr? are a ton on Reddit. Tumblr, Reddit. They're asking for relationship advice. Whew. Whew. 
that's hard i don't know if i'm qualified i'm not helping with that at all (laughs) um but yeah yeah where are the teens i do have a snapchat actually i just don't use it maybe we can find them somewhere or if you're listening to this and they're teens in your life maybe you can ask them and then let us know what they say yeah at what age are you allowed to be like what do you think about it in your sex life what do you think about it yeah would you date a 500 year old dude (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's a loaded question depends on the dude i guess <laughs> even i feel too young for a 500 year old person dude. i don't know yeah person yeah so true me specifically dude not just dudes yeah but other people whoever you would like to date whomever whomever whatever gender or yeah. no gender yeah i was gonna say we're no gender on a totally different note i really enjoyed the banter between maya and idan i found myself laughing out loud a ton in this book <laughs> <laughs> um which i really wasn't expecting expecting Mm -mm. such a sucker for banter yes so am i that's one of the tropey things that i love about ya like i will stand it forever me too i love it it brings me such joy and it um reminds me of face and a little bit i think it's actually why like absolutely 100 percent, a thousand percent love season two of fleabag because like the banter between her and the priest are like top notch I just love it. Mm, oh, I it's love just that. so good. It's like intellectual foreplay. Yes. Oh, my God. And in Fleabag, it is. Like, oh, my God. If you haven't watched Fleabag, like, I know this first season is, like, not the greatest. But, like, watch season two. It's, like, the best. I, it's on my... I'm just coming down off on of my watching it. And TVW. I'm like, I might watch it again. It's so good. I want to say that there's... It's been a while since a book has surprised me as much as this did. With plot twists. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting the becoming a demon thing. No. Um, Especially because she's a woman becoming a demon. Yeah. Very unusual. I don't know. Wasn't expecting the... I, I can't remember specifically what surprised me, but I just remember feeling surprised. <laughs> so that's like an unhelpful note for this section of the of the podcast. Here we go. It's fine. So I don't really know where to put this. And since this is our catch-all section, I'm putting it here. The arts become a new front on which to wage cultural war after military conflict with the Shansen has ended for now. And Babas, or Baba says this on, or Maya's Baba says this on in location 306 of the ebook. Now that the war is over, Baba said, the emperor needs to show the rest of the world that Alanda is great. He will do so by hiring the best of everyone, musicians, tailors, and painters. No expense will be spared. It is an honor to be invited, one I cannot refuse. End quote. This really brought up for me that maybe it's like coming off of watching the debates and I'm having a lot of thoughts, but the like art has a political impact and it really has a lot of potential to make change. Um, But the arts should be used for liberation and ending oppressive regimes, not perpetuating them. And they're being used, the emperors like hiring all the best musicians and tailors or whatever is used to perpetuate an oppressive regime. Yeah. And maybe whatever Maya is doing in those dresses which have power might be a way of ending that. Yeah, we don't know. We'll I don't see. know what'll happen with it. Stay tuned. I really appreciate it in the story. I think we're going to see Maya becoming a demon more in the second book. Yeah. But I actually really appreciated the fact that like the demons and what seems to be her power when she becomes one don't have her becoming like a seductress, like in the classical sense of what it means when a woman is evil. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the next book, but it doesn't seem to be going toward that like trope. 
Yeah. And I kind of appreciate that because oftentimes like an evil woman is a seductress or is sexualized. Yeah. I mean, we saw that it's like a sexual predation thing. We saw mm-hmm. that with Ianthe and Amarantha. That yeah. was one of the things we brought up in the Akameth episode. Yeah. So I'm interested to see how that will turn out. Yeah. Recommend if you like Mulan, but you wanted like a shit ton more magic. Fiber arts. Fiber arts. If you're arts. a fiber artist. If you love 500-year-old dudes. <laughs> <laughs> if you like, liked, I don't know. Quests. Yeah. There's the like have to obtain magical object type quests. Yeah. You know? Like from Harry Potter. This is kind thing. of a travel story, but we actually don't see much of the traveling. So if you're not like into travel stories, which I am not, um, like you'll still love this story, even though it seems travel. You get to see a bunch of places, but without doing the actual boring part of traveling yeah you read it anyway i would say yes even if it's not your thing Mm -hmm. agreed which is big praise coming from jesse just so you know it turns out i just didn't like one travel story i think so (laughs) it just become a thing that i don't like them but i just didn't like one yeah that's fine okay real talk before we end did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Was there were there things that stood out to you or things that made you interrogate a constant system or trend? Jesse? No? <laughs> I got nothing. I'm really? so sorry. You say you said all you needed to say beforehand. Yeah, I that's guess. the hard part. Like I've said all the things that it made me like think about, and so now I have nothing. This is like a on. little nuggets of wisdom section. Yeah. And one that I took out from the book was the quote, don't work so hard, you become the kite that never flies. I just think that's beautiful. Okay, don't point at me. <laughs> I see that. I am like real life adding Kelly right now. With her face yeah. and her finger. <laughs> and her pointer <laughs> finger. That's some sage advice. And I mean, I guess it's maybe there's hope for me since I'm the one who picked this nugget of wisdom out and I could use it more in my life. But having fun is important. Joy and pleasure are important. And I, this is particularly salient for me because I'm me. And then also I'm reading Pleasure Activism by Adrian Marie Brown. Highly recommend. Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in three weeks for a discussion of House of Salt and Sorrows by Aaron A. Craig. And watch out for the occasional mini-sode about a range of fantasy-adjacent topics. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at JKMagicPod. Post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. Do you have an idea for a book that we should add to our TBR? Email us at jkmagicpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions. If you know someone who would enjoy the podcast, please, please, please spread the word. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, SoundCloud, all of or wherever else you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and then also rate and review because it really helps people find the show. And we love to hear what you think. And we're open to listener feedback. So get in touch. JK It's Magic is recorded on the land of Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho Native peoples. Until next time, stay magical. Mm-hmm.